Have you ever had a roommate or a neighbor who made you wish that the standards for living near or with you are much more rigorous? Probably we all have at one point or another. Over the past 25 years, Carme and I have had mostly good neighbors. This probably isn't the time to identify by name those who weren't good neighbors. But we've also, praise God, had some great neighbors. And I would say that our best neighbors were Frank and Lynn and Joe and Mary Rose. And the reason that I'm mentioning them by name is because I told them I would if they watched this sermon this morning. But they actually have been our best neighbors. We lived in a six-unit building just a few blocks west of here, and oftentimes I would go home from church and find out that we were having dinner together, or we were going to be hanging out on the deck together while our kids played. And we'd be out there for hours laughing and talking. And in fact, just last week, unexpectedly, we wound up spending about three hours together, the six of us, in Frank and Lynn's kitchen and just had a wonderful time. It was a tremendous blessing. It made the eight years since we left feel like only eight minutes had gone by. One of the things that we talked about while we were together was life in a multi-unit building and how the standards for who could live there were pretty low. If you could pay your mortgage or rent, you could stay. You never really needed to change a light bulb, so most of our neighbors didn't. You weren't required to clean up the common areas outside of your door, so most of our neighbors never came around to do that, <clears throat> bless their hearts. If there was a water leak in your apartment that might damage the unit below, you didn't need to tell them. Let it come as a surprise. Low standards like that are why some of us have had or have uh, roommates or neighbors who, how can I put this nicely, we wish we never had as roommates or neighbors. Maybe we should just leave it at that. God, being much wiser than we are, actually has very high standards for those who can live with him. And that is what we are going to consider this morning from Psalm 15. In this short psalm, King David asks the question, what kind of person can live with you, Lord? What kind of person can dwell on your holy hill and be in your holy presence? And then David gives a, a six-fold description of the person who is able to live with God. And significantly, this description isn't full of religious observances, rituals, and so forth that people think God wants. It's actually representative of the law of God, and it penetrates to the heart of the person. In other words, God's standards for who can live with him are really about the person you truly are. Let's read Psalm 15. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 453. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. I need to say that I am indebted to uh, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce for the outline of this psalm. I mention that because uh, he's in heaven right now. And in case he's watching, I don't want him to tell Jesus that I didn't give him credit. <laughs> psalm 15 begins with two questions of the Lord. 
Who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, if it sounds like David's asking the same question twice, he essentially is. A chief characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Often the first line is repeated in the second line with some modifications, as we see here. Sometimes the second line expresses a contrast. At other times, parallelism takes the form of not only this, but also that. And we see that in the second half of verse 4. Parallelism allows the poet to put the emphasis on the most important part. And at the beginning of our psalm, we are confronted with what is an internally important question. One author put David's question this way. What kind of man or woman pleases you, Lord? I mean, can you think of a question with greater consequence? I mean, if you are angering the creator and the judge of the universe all the time, you would want to know that. Or if you're doing things that please him, that would also be important information to know as well. And David describes here the person who can dwell with the Lord in six couplets or pairs of statements in this psalm. And as we go along, I want to encourage you. See how well this description fits you. What kind of person can live with God? First, the one whose character is blameless. Verse 2 says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So, I think we've all been eliminated here in the first round, right? The Hebrew word for blameless actually means whole or sound. It does not mean sinless. Instead, it refers to a person whose character is upright in all areas and who is committed to doing what the Lord requires. Not someone who seems honorable in public, but when alone, is a very different person. Simply put, they do what is right. When they're faced with a choice to decide between doing what God wants them to do or what they want to do, the kind of person they are, the desires that they have cultivated in their life, the thoughts that they allow themselves to entertain, those things compel this person to do what God wants them to do, even though it may be at great cost or is painful. In the Bible, Noah, Job, and Abraham are called blameless. They were characterized by integrity in their relationship with the Lord. They had hearts that desired to please God. Noah, as you know, lived in an age of wickedness, and God gave him an ark-sized task that took decades to complete. Job suffered horrendously at the hands of the devil, but he still trusted the Lord. And Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. Regardless of what God required them to do, they did it. They were blameless and did what was right. And that is the kind of man or woman who can live with the Lord. The second description of the person who can live with the Lord is the one who speaks the truth. Verse 2 goes on to say, and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. This couplet contains a contrast. The person who can live with the Lord speaks truth on the one hand, and yet does not slander anyone on the other. Their speech is always truthful. It is never slanderous. Again, the idea goes deeper than just behavior, and it speaks to the character of the person. A person who speaks the truth is a trustworthy person. You might say that they're a straight shooter. You can trust what they say. Some people are known for saying things that may be factually accurate, but are misleading and untrustworthy. 
The Bible calls those people politicians. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, it goes across all, all uh, professional fields. But sadly, it is a skill that many people seem intent on trying to perfect. And all of us know people that we don't trust. I mean, we may love them, but we don't trust them. I can remember the, uh, the fibbing stage that my children went through, and I pray that they're actually through. They could have chocolate smeared all over their face. They could be chewing vigorously and holding a bag of M&Ms in each hand. And if you were to ask them, are you snacking before dinner? Their response would be, no, 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 not me. Uh -uh. You're going to need to look elsewhere for that kind of behavior. It's not happening here. Untrustworthy. And unfortunately, adults can do the same thing, right? We're a little bit more sophisticated at it, but it's, it's not beyond us to pull something like that. But when the person who pleases the Lord speaks, they are completely trusted. Because as the affirmation in courts of law say, they speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And why do you think they had to put it in those three ways? Because people are looking for ways to get around the truth. The second part of the couplet says that they do not slander people. Slanderous statements, in my experience, are often wrong and ignorant. We, we think we understand what's going on, but they are often wrong and ignorant. But they may be true statements, but what makes them slanderous is that they are intended to harm or damage someone by sharing them with others inappropriately. Now, let's be honest for a minute. Every single one of us is guilty of this. We have gossiped, we have slandered, we have criticized people. Probably, as uh, many of you might suspect, among the most damaging sins in a church, slander, gossip, criticism, it destroys relationships, it destroys reputations, and it destroys unity. You know, Jesus spoke very harshly about slander. He included it in a list of some very evil things in Mark 7. Beginning in verse 21, he said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So Jesus takes it seriously, so we must as well. You know, when you slander someone, when you gossip about them, it actually says far more about you and me than it does about the person that we are attacking. What it reveals in us is a heart that is arrogant, judgmental, and unloving, right? There is a strong pull in us, though, to slander people. Even if we know it's wrong, there is a strong pull. Why? Because sometimes these people have hurt us, and we want to get back at them. Sometimes they are so cocky, it makes us sick. And at other times, we know that they're a hypocrite, and other people don't know, and we're doing the work of God to tell people about them. That's what we think. That's how we justify it. But the kind of person who pleases the Lord and can dwell with him never slanders anyone. Instead, their speech is consistent with Ephesians 4, verse 29, which says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion 
that it may give grace to those who hear. And slander never gives grace to anyone. You know, no one likes to live with someone who never shuts up, doesn't stop complaining, or who trashes people all the time. And neither does the Lord. The third description of the person who can live with the Lord is the one who loves others. Verse 3, And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a, a reproach against his friend. Now, at first glance, the requirement in this verse doesn't seem very demanding, right? So we've lived in a cul-de-sac of about 11 houses for the last eight years, and I think you would be hard-pressed to find a single neighbor who would say, Pastor Bill has done me evil. And you know what? I'm pretty proud of that. But keep in mind that the Lord defines neighbor more broadly than just those who you live near and perhaps rarely see and even know. People can be evil to one another. And if you can stomach watching the news or reading the newspaper, you have evidence of that every single day without fail. But we can see it a lot closer as well, can't we, in the relationships that we're in. Doing evil to someone doesn't mean just doing the worst possible thing you can, right? Like burning down their house or smashing the windows of their car. It is much bigger than that. And again, it speaks to the heart of the person who desires to live with the Lord. The second part of this couplet gives us an example of doing evil. Now, the language of the uh, ESV, our, our pew Bibles, says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. That's not really common language, right? So I think looking at a couple of other versions help us understand what the meaning is here. The NIV says, casts no slur on others. The New Living Translation says, refuses to speak evil of their friends. And I really like the translation of the New American Standard, does not bring shame on his friend. This third couplet is actually similar to the previous one because we can do great evil to others, neighbors and friends alike, by speaking badly about them. But the idea here seems to be taking it a little bit further in ter terms of how we treat one another. And one commentator put it this way, although casting a slur usually suggests verbal abuse to us, a slur can also be cast, perhaps more often is cast, by how we actually treat another person. The kind of man or woman who meets the qualifications to live with God, to be in his presence, treats everyone, whether they know them personally or not, as those who have been made in the image of God. That's how we see them, as those made in the image of God and thus worthy of respect. We don't view one another superficially. We see what's most important about them, the fact that they have been created by God, that God loves them. He made them in his image. So we don't judge them just by appearances, but by how God made them to be. Therefore, as is commanded over and over again in Scripture, we have a godly love for them that shows up in how we treat them. Not just those who love us, because it's no different than the world, but even those that are difficult to love, those that hate us. We seek to protect rather than destroy their reputations. We look for ways to help build their character and those weaknesses that they have rather than tearing them down. We refuse to harm them in any way. That is a big requirement. We don't want to harm them physically, emotionally, or spiritually. In short, we do them no evil. We love them. The fourth description of the person who can live with God is the one who shares God's values. Verse 4 goes on to say, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but one who 
but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now this couplet may actually sound like a contradiction to what I just said, but it can't be because <laughs> I'm never wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly never wrong. This is not a question about judging someone, right? Going around pointing fingers, you're vile, you're vile, I think you're vile. It's not an arrogant posturing that looks down on other people in a self-righteous way, right? That, that attitude makes God sick. This requirement here, though, is actually a choosing of allegiances. Are you on God's side? Or are you on the side of God's enemies? I mean, and the sad, shocking truth is God has enemies. A vile man is one who despises the Lord. He makes no secret about it. He mocks God. He ridicules God's laws and boldly proclaims that he will never have to give an answer to this God if he even exists. He has no use for the kingdom of God or the people of God who he looks at as fools or wicked fools. These people exist. Not all of them are as outspoken or public about how they feel, but their words and their actions put them squarely and often happily in the camp of God's enemies. And they may be a loved one to you. They may be a co-worker. They may be someone famous whose work that you admire. But the one who is qualified to live with the Lord sees this person the way God sees them. That means that you don't overlook the fact that they are vile and treated as incidental. You don't admire them. You hate their vileness. You are sickened by the way that they oppose your heavenly Father and Savior. And it brings about in you a righteous anger. If it doesn't, you are marginalizing that. You are treating it as incidental. And I, I think that there is actually a great danger of us failing in this regard. We see this in the world, but unfortunately we see it in the church as well. It's why famous and powerful people can get away with evil behavior for so long. Because even though they are despicable, they are admired and they are honored. And that, this text tells us, is unworthy of anyone who is qualified to live with the Lord. The second part of this couplet in verse 4 says, they honor those who fear the Lord. Perhaps the question to ask is, do you see people as they really are, or do you judge primarily by appearances? If our allegiance is wholeheartedly to the Lord, then we will honor those who fear him. That is, those who love and obey him. We will honor them because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. They may be poor. They may be uneducated. They may even use the salad fork for their entree, heaven forbid. But you're willing to overlook those things because of who they are, what God has done in their lives. You see what is eternally significant in them. They are those who honor the Lord. They have been cleansed and forgiven. They are, as I said, brothers and sisters in Christ. So you don't see time spent with them as wasted, but profitable. You don't disregard their opinions or perspectives because they are less educated than you. You value them because they too have the Holy Spirit. They have something to offer. They are a child of God. These, you might say, are your heroes. These are the people that you admire because they fear the Lord. Whether or not the world recognizes these people, and often, of course, the world does not, the one who desires to live in the presence of the Almighty will bestow respect and honor on those who fear the Lord. The fifth description 
of the person who can live with the Lord is this, the one who lives with integrity. Verse 4 goes on to say, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know, the person here has a deep sense of integrity, whose commitment to holiness is greater than his or her commitment to temporal self-interest. The phrase, to his own hurt, is really the key, right? I mean, it's one thing to make a vow that you think is going to bring you good. It happens all the time at weddings and in business arrangements and even friendships. You make vows because you believe this will be good for me. This will bring me things that I want. I will be better off if I make this vow. But what happens when the circumstances change and now this vow hurts you and is very costly and painful to maintain? What do you do then? Do you keep your vow? Do you keep your word? Or do you try to find a way to get out of it? And you know how you respond to that isn't just a one-time thing. It reveals the kind of person that you are. It reveals what is most important to you. And the kind of person who desires to honor the Lord will honor his or her vows. You know, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 7, put this very strongly. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. And that really is the contrast. You're either going to stand in awe of God or break your vow. I think this is another area we must guard against taking lightly because it is serious to the Lord. Well, the sixth and final description of the person who can live with the Lord is the one who does not love money. Verse 5 says this, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And I think that the idea here is there is a prohibition against putting money before people. And you might be thinking, well, I'm people. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about other people. You putting money ahead of other people. It's a temptation that leads to all kinds of sin, including usury, charging extreme interest rates, bribery, theft, and even stinginess. The Old Testament law specifically stated that God's people were forbidden from charging interest to the poor. Not all charging of interest is condemned in the Bible, but lending money in a way that harms people is sinful. The second part of this couplet speaks against bribery, which is also forbidden in the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 16, 19 says this, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Now, the prophet Isaiah actually has a great description of the kind of person who refuses to take a bribe. He says it is one who shakes his hands so they hold no bribe. They, they can't hold on to their money because they're shaking their hands. So how does the man or woman who desires to live with God handle his or her financial relationships with others with justice and compassion, the way God deals with us? I mean, don't you agree that generosity is one of the most beautiful qualities in a person? I, I think it is. I think generosity is one of the most beautiful 
qualities anyone can have. When Christians are not stingy with their time or with their possessions or with their money, they reflect the generosity of God. And you can see in them the joy that they have in sharing what God has given to them. And because of that, it causes people to praise God. I suspect every one of us has done that. We have praised God because of the generosity of someone else. They have spent more time with us than we thought they would. They have been more generous with us financially or with their possessions than we would ever have expected. It may have even caused us to be a little bit convicted because we thought, I wouldn't do that for anybody. It causes us to praise God because of that. That's the kind of person that all of us should strive to be. But of course, God's people were, were called to more than the letter of the law, right? We're called to follow the heart of the law. And God's heart for all of us in all of our financial dealings is to put people ahead of money. And by doing this, we please God greatly. I think one of the most helpful things that I've ever heard on the subject of, of money and stewardship is simply this. It is not your money. It's God's. And you have to treat it that way. The final verse of this psalm brings us a promise, those who desire to live with the Lord. It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. You know, most English translations use either moved or shaken, and I think shaken is actually a clearer term to get to the author's meaning. Shaken in the Old Testament describes insecurity and defeat. The promise of God to the man in this psalm is that he will never be shaken. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord and because the Lord is always with him. Psalm 16, 8 says this, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Psalm 62, 6, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, I shall not be shaken. And so for the people in this psalm being described here, what it means is that those who are qualified to live eternally with the Lord will never be shaken out of it. They are eternally the Lord's. They are secure in his presence no matter what happens. And it is a glorious, glorious promise. Now here's the problem, and it's a big one. Uh, no one meets these qualifications. No one. No one's blameless. We do not always speak the truth. Sometimes we lie. Sometimes we gossip and we slander people. We do not always love people the way that we should. We do not perfectly value people the way the Lord does. Sometimes we judge by appearances. Nor do we always keep our word even when it hurts. And at times, and only God knows how often, you and I have put money ahead of people. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So we are left with one practical answer to the question posed in verse 1. Nobody, nobody can sojourn in the tent of the Lord. Nobody can live in his tent or sanctuary. No one is able to live on God's holy hill. Now if that was the end of God's word or the end of my message, we would be in a very desperate place. But praise God, it is not the end of the story. The good news, and this is absolutely critical, the good news is that the character qualities that are listed in this passage, the requirements for fellowship with God, are not the qualities that God finds in men and women. It is 
They are the qualities that he creates in them. That's what he does. He will not find them in any of us, but he can create them in all of us. You may recall the famous prayer of St. Augustine where he said, give us what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. In other words, empower us, God, to do whatever you command and then command whatever you wish. You know, all of the Bible points to Jesus, implicitly or explicitly. And so we should ask, where is Jesus in Psalm 15? And he's not mentioned by name, but he is here because he is the only one who perfectly fulfills the description and the requirements of this passage. He alone can live on the holy hill of God because he alone has lived perfectly. But listen to the hope of 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. So for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, who in Jesus' words have been born again, we are waiting Jesus' return where we will be like him. All of the sin, past, present, and future, forgiven because of his work on the cross, eternally separated from that sin. And because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are becoming more and more like Jesus as we yield to him. Our desire to have the character of Christ formed in us grows greater than our desire for sin. And I want to encourage those of you who may be younger or newer in the faith. It doesn't feel like that at times. But the more you yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the more you choose what God calls you to choose rather than yourself, the stronger your desire for righteousness becomes. The freer you become, the more joy you experience in walking with the Lord, the more you hate your sin, but you've got to yield to him. You've got to obey. I think that the changing of our desires from sinful desires to godly desires is one of the strongest proofs that we are saved. It is also one of the greatest blessings that God gives us because as Christians, we realize that we are enslaved to the sins that we give ourselves over to and we hate it. Praise God for the beauty of his plan of salvation, taking unworthy people, unrighteous people, and because of Jesus, giving us his perfection, his obedience, taking away our sin, nailing it to the cross, recreating us, changing our personalities, our characters, our desires all to reflect himself so that we are qualified to live with him forever. It is amazing. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're listening to this description, you're saying, I'm not even close. Then my prayer is that you would feel the weight of conviction, of guilt over where you are right now, and you would trust in Jesus. He is holy, but he is merciful. He is just, but he receives all sinners who come to him for forgiveness. Let me close by encouraging you with what I think are two really amazing implications of this psalm. First, the truth of Psalm 15 is that it is possible to dwell with the Lord forever. It is possible. I mean, it didn't have to be that way, right? There are people that you and I say, I will never live with or near in the same state as you again. So help me. You never want to be with them again. And God could look at us that way and say, no thank you, I'm closing the door. But it is possible to live with a holy God forever and ever. 
I mean, many of us at Moody Church, we know that, but we could never take that for granted. He didn't close the door and said God delights to be with us and went to great lengths to make it possible. And second, being in the presence of God is the greatest thing that you and I could ever imagine or experience. There is nothing that will ever excel that. And when you ask, what is it about the presence of God that so drew King David? And what is it that should draw us and long for the return of Christ? Psalm 27, 4 says, so that we can behold the beauty of the Lord. Our eyes are drawn to beauty, right? You may think, oh, that's why people are staring at me all the time. I don't know, maybe. We are drawn to beauty. And we will behold the beauty of the Lord for all eternity. Psalm 21, 6, we are made glad with the joy of the Lord's presence. We get a taste of it now if you know and love the Lord, but it's just a taste. So let me ask you, what do you think about when you think about heaven? I think of several things. I think of never-ending joy, complete freedom from all sorrow and regret that just taints this life. No anxiety. Can you imagine that? No anxiety, no depression, no mourning, no homework, no housework, no meetings, no sin, no crime, no elections, no divorce, no disease, no gossip, no pain. It's all gone. It's all gone forever. Only peace everywhere. Love everywhere. Joy all the time goodness, beauty, kindness, soul-enriching worship, endless exploration of God's creation, harmony in all our relationships, soaking in the beauty and the majesty of our Heavenly Father and our Savior Jesus forever and ever without end. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Psalm 1611 says it best. Think about this, and I'll pray. Lord, in thy presence is fullness of joy. We've never experienced fullness of joy, but in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, through the work of Jesus on the cross, you have made it possible for sinners like us to dwell with you forever. Unworthy though we are, Jesus was completely worthy and makes us worthy by being united to him by faith. And what awaits us, wow, we can't even comprehend it. It makes all the suffering of this world look like nothing. And so, Father, I pray that you would just increase the appetites of your people for what we can have now. An intimate presence with you, joyfully obeying you and walking with you as this psalm describes. That is the path of freedom and joy. That's the path to your glory. And again, Father, I pray for those who are listening who don't know you. They may think they do. They may be religious. But Lord, they don't know you personally. My prayer, Father, is that you would just lay it on their hearts. They need to come to Jesus. Open their eyes to see their need. Father, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.